And welcome back. In this chapter of this episode, we will be going over chapter 14, um, 12, 11, and 8. Uh, please enjoy. Alright, welcome back. Classes in session. Um, we got a long one to go through. Um, so let's get started. In this class, we'll be covering chapter 11, which is customers' accounts. Um, first topic is telemarketing. FINRA and the MSRB have telemarketing rules that allow firms to solicit new business by cold calling potential clients. Prior to making a cold call, the caller must ensure that individuals on, is on the national or firms do not call list. Cold calls permitted between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. of a town, time, person's time zone is okay. Um, any scripts must be approved by the principal of the firm. This act also applies to fax machines and auto dialers in any, in addition to covering any, uh, people calling, like register reps. Um, the do not call list under the telemarketer rules. Once an individual has been added to a firm's do not call list, they remain there indefinitely. Do not call list exceptions. A registered rep can call an individual on the do not call list if the individual is number one, an existing customer of the firm, the registered rep has a personal relationship with the individual, or the individual has provided prior written consent to call them. Also, this is a side note, the national list is the Federal Trade Commission's uh, national do not call list, so FTCs. Alright, next topic, let's go to the new account form. A new account form must be completed when a customer opens a new brokerage account with the broker-dealer. Required information includes the customer's name, address, social security, employment status, investment experience, and objectives. The firm is required to maintain a record of this form. Accounts can be open for businesses, customers, institution, multiple people, and investment club, clubs, not clubs, not Chicago clubs. Uh, numbered accounts. Numbered accounts is a brokerage account that a representative, that is represented by a symbol or number, allowing the account holder, aka a lot of the times a celebrity, to remain anonymous. The broker-dealer must still receive a written statement of ownership and proof of identity from the client. The opening account approval must be approved by a designated principal prior to uh, prior to the transaction. After the account is open, this might be a little confusing, the firm has 30 days to send a new customer request for verification of the account information if the customer sends any changes. So only if the customer sends changes. Firm must send verification within 30 days of receiving the notice. Regular notices are sent out every 36 months when there is no change um, in accounts or joint ownership. There are notices that are going to be sent to each owner, so remember that. Let's talk about Regulation T settlement. Mandates investors pay for all trades by T plus 4. Um, the broker-dealer can ask for an extension from FINRA. If no extension is granted, the broker-dealer must must have the position sold out by the fifth day and the account 
frozen for nine days. The broker dealer can waive the reg T if the amount is less than a thousand dollars. Side note, if a customer purchases a security and sells the same security without paying for the original price, the broker dealer will freeze the account and will not release the sales of the proceeds until the customer pays for the original amount. Duh. Uh, free riding is a violation under Regulation T, where the investor sells their security without ever paying for it. If this occurs, the customer account will be frozen for 90 days, and the transaction in the account will be limited to sell and purchase purchases when the customers pay the full price up front. And a quick disclaimer. Um, in the right T, when I said the account must be frozen for 90 days, I meant 90 days. Um, Okay, so let's move on to margin accounts. Um, all short sales must be in a margin account regardless. The disclosure of a risk of a margin account trading must be given to the customer at the time the account is open and annually after. Additionally, RegT requires the customer to deposit initially 50% of the market value. For example, if a customer sells short $100,000 worth of stock, they must deposit 50 grand into equity into the account. But therefore, after the long margin account initial minimum requirements, under the FINRA rule, if a customer wants to purchase less than $2,000 worth of stock, they must deposit 100%. If the purchase price, for example, uh, sorry, for example, if the customer wants to buy 100 or $1,000 worth of stock on margin, they must also deposit the $1,000. So the $2,000 is the, the minimum. Um, if the customer wants to purchase between $2,000 and $4,000 in a margin account, they must deposit the minimum initially, initial equity of $2,000. But I'll give you a good example to clarify that. That's a little confusing. For example, if a customer wants to buy 3000 of stock margin, they must deposit $2,000 um, because this is over 50%, but that's the minimum. 2000 is the minimum. But once you once you get over 4000 because 2000 is halfway to 4000 then the 50% rule uh, takes place. So that's Regulation T. That's also a FINRA account. Um, I will get back to that. And second, marginal securities, the Federal Reserve Board determines whether securities eligible to be purchased on margin. Those can include exchange-listed stocks, closed-end funds, ETFs, fixed income securities, treasury bonds, and LEAP options. Um, LEAP options with more than nine months until expiration. Securities that cannot be bought. Uh, sorry. Go back to the leaps. I, I don't know my microphone cut out, but it's got to be line, line, nine months option contracts. Securities that cannot be bought on margin include option contracts with less than nine months until expiration, mutual funds, IPOs for the first 30 days, and annuity contracts. Um, just to restate, remember the margin requirement on a long purchase. Um, essentially, they're the same, but... Um, and this is, this is just the, um, the FINRA one. 
Uh, I have to make another correction. When I originally said onward, I meant I meant like up front. So we'll get on to onward. But remember, long purchases, the minimum is 2000 But once you get over 4000 then it becomes 50% of the price. Um, that is both a FINRA and a Reg T governing. And for short sales, it's essentially the same. Um, the securities lending unit of a broker dealer that acts as a middleman in these transactions with no price risk. So there essentially is no credit risk. The mutual fund and the investor who have purchased the short sales have the price risk if the price sales decline. The customer who wants to sell has a risk if the shares go up in value. So remember, the broker dealer is just a middleman in these short sales. At account not at account opening. So FINRA's minimum maintenance. So here we go. So this is after the initial one. So this is where FINRA marks to market for long marginable securities, 20% of the market value for short, it's got to be, you got to maintain at least 30%. Um, the brokerage firm does mark to market accounting, mark to market checking on these securities at the end of every trading day. So say if you're long margin, 800 K in stocks, your minimum equity is 200,000. If your equity falls to 180, you're going to have a margin call of 20K. As far as the margin agreement, the, the components of the margin agreement, the first one is hyper, oh my God, I can't even pronounce it. Hyperthification, whatever, you know, it's the one that starts with an H. In a margin account, the customer borrows 50% of the purchase price from the broker dealer by securities. We know that. In return, the customer agrees to hypercate, meaning pledge the securities in their account as collateral for their loan. Securities must be held in a street name, aka broker deal. Next is a credit agreement. This is the broker call rate as the interest rate. We know what that is. And then another one is a loan consent form. This form is optional. Um, this goes to other people in, in at the firm or other customers. It's the loan consent form, which is an optional of the margin agreement. If signed by the customer, it allows the broker-dealer to lend stock that's held in the customer's account for other investors who are facilitating short sales. All right, and um, the last one is a margin account disclosure. Requires the firm to provide a margin discount dis disclosure statement to each customer prior or at opening of the account. This, this statement reminds the customers of the risk in a margin account and must include the following warnings. You can lose more funds than you deposit. The firm can force the sale of securities or other assets in your account. The firm can sell your securities or other assets without contacting you. You're not entitled to choose which assets are sold if you are required to meet a margin call. The firm can in increase its house maintenance or requirement at any time. You're not entitled to a, a time extension on the margin account. Okay. Let's move on to options accounts. Um, the options principal representative approves the options account with the options disclosure written up by the OCC. Um, options accounts procedure, the rep sends a customer the options account risk disclosure. The information is reviewed by the procedure when the, uh, by the principal. This is whether the account is approved or not. Um, must be in writing, right? So the customer sends it back. And step two is reviewed by the principal. Step three 
the customer can begin trading if approved options. And step four, the customer must return the agreement in 15 days. You may place opening trades in a newly opened options account for 15 days before returning the signed options agreement. If you don't return the sign in 15 days, you will only be limited to placing closing option trades only. Uh, next one is discretionary accounts. Uh, discretionary account is a brokerage account where the customer has given their rep at the time or at the firm the written authority to make investments, decisions, and trades on their behalf. If a rep does not have discretionary authority, it would be a violation for them to conduct trades on behalf of the customer, even if they believe the transactions are in the best interest of their client. Without the customer's consent, customers uh, without yet. So customers must sign a POA, a power of attorney, to the firm. The POA is ended if the customer is dead, if it dies, if the customer dies. Let's say it in a nice way. Uh, side note, an existing power of attorney would be canceled if the court declares the customer legally incompetent. An exception exists if the customer had durable power of attorney, which would remain in effect. Okay, thanks. Remember that a discretionary account is, the discretionary trade is where a rep is deciding the trade of one of the three A's. So remember the three A's is where to buy, to sell action, what security you buy, um, asset. So it's action, asset, and the third one is the amount. The shares, note that time and price are not discretionary theories. This will become a do not held order. A do not held order is when a customer provides asset amount and action, but allows the register rep to choose the price and time for execution. So, for example, the customer states, buy 100 shares of XYZ stock when the price is right. And not held order, not held orders do not require discretionary authority. A not held order is one where the registered rep is just selecting the price and time only. The customer has provided all the other instructions on the trade. All right, so trading authority, the owner of the account has trading authority, which is the ability to trade the assets of the account, a non-account holder can trade on behalf of the account if rights are granted and written by the account holder. Example, an adult child can make trades for her mother if the mother has granted authority in writing to her son. Fee-based accounts, uh, the customers pay a flat fee um, for the, the account. This type would not be appropriate for buy and hold investors as they would have to pay that fee. Uh, let's move on to types of accounts. So you have individual accounts. The owner of the account has trading authority, which the ability to trade assets of the account. Non-holders can trade on the account's holder if it's written in the account, uh, written in writing. So we know that. Um, let's talk about the different accounts and hit on the joint accounts. Um, joint accounts, you don't like those ones. So remember the individual accounts, single ownership. Um, when the person dies, it's in the will. And we have the two joint accounts, uh, joint tenants in common or JTIC, where it's a divided, a divided um, ownership. 
So if you put in 50% and I put in 50%, then we own 50%. Or if you put in 60 and I put in 40, it's disproportionate. Or it's proportional of what you put in. And when you die, you you pass the assets to a beneficiary. Um, the next type of joint customer is joint tenants with rights of survivorship, where remember J T W R O S is non-divided ownership. So wh- whatever amount of money you put in, it's divided equally. Um, and then when one person dies, the other person takes their ownership stake. So I'll rephrase that again, but I think you got it from that. Joint accounts, the two main types of joint accounts are joint tenants in common. JTIC is a divided account where each account owner specifies their percentage of ownership based on the account on their contributions. Um, At each owner's death, their proportion of the account is distributed to their beneficiary or someone they pick, not surviving account owners. The JTIC account assets are subject to prorate. The inheritance via quorum, I don't think it's important, and are, distri- and are distributed as part of the deceased estate. Unrelated friends or siblings who want to leave their assets to a representative's spouse might open a GTIC together. Next, the joint tenant with the right of survivorship, GTWROS, is an undivided account, meaning that all owners own 100% of the assets. One of the owners died, the share of the account passes to the other surviving member. In a JTWROS, the assets avoid probate and go straight to the survivor. So probate means you die and it goes to, to whoever you pick as a beneficiary. When you avoid probate, it just goes straight to the survivor. A husband and wife might open a JTWROS account together because if one of them dies, the other one gets the assets. Um, payments and joint accounts and the joint accounts checks must be payable to all parties. Transfer of death, uh, a TOD account has name of that beneficiary and has avoided probate, which means the assets in the account bypass the state settlement process and are transferred directly to the beneficiary at death. Um, two other accounts that we're going to touch on are minor accounts and trust accounts in a minor account obviously the kid is is the minor and but the person who runs the account is the custodian which is usually an adult um minors minor accounts there's two types there's ugma there's utma and utma accounts are security accounts that can be established for a minor because a minor owns the account their social security is on the account and the minor is liable for any taxes. However, the account is managed by a custodian who trades on behalf of the minor. The custodian can be the same individual that donates assets to the account, example, parent, and the custodian be the manager. Once the minor reaches the age of majority, um, which varies by state, they, they take control of the assets. Additionally, any assets that are gifted to the minor are irrevocable, which means they cannot be taken back. Uh, once again, the two accounts are UGMA and UTMA. Um, just to refresh, a new account registration for a UGMA account, a minor account, includes the name of the custodian, and it would not include the name of the individual who donates the funds, unless the donor was a custodian too. 
next one is a trust account. A trust account, a beneficiary, beneficiary's assets are managed by a trustee. The trustee has a fiduciary responsibility, meaning they have to act in the best interest by ensuring the terms are set forth in the trust agreement adhered to. One benefit of a trust, it allows the creator of a trust or the grantor to limit or restrict the use of the assets. For example, a grandparent can set up a trust for a minor, which allows the assets to be used for educational expenses only. Maintenance of customers' accounts. Next topic. So maintenance of customers' accounts, customers' account statements, um, which are snapshots of the customer account, must be sent at least quarterly by the firm. Uh, monthly for those who have a lot of activity on the account. So remember, quarterly for sure, but monthly if it's active, very active. I don't know, just active. Just active. The test is only going to say active, so just, just worry about that. Holding customer mail, if a customer will be traveling, they re can request their broker-dealer to hold onto their mail, such as trade confirmations, account statements, for up to three months, but the customer must make this request in writing. Um, really quick, for a trade confirmation, must be delivered to customers at or before the completion of each transaction, aka settlement, must include date, amount, price, time of trade, C-U-I-S-P-D-I-D, trade settlement ID, broker name, address, capacity, agent and principal, amount, markup, markdown, and commissions. Uh, the trade confirmation must be sent over on or at the settlement date. Um, a few other things is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporations or the DTC, the DTCC is a clearing Corporation that works behind the scenes of a security transaction helping to facilitate the exchange, payment, and settlement of trades. The DTCC has several subsidiaries, such as the DTC and the NSCC. The differences between the subsidiaries are not important for the example. So we just wasted five seconds of our lives. Regulation SP. Remember this one. Re Regulation SP establishes privacy standards in to ensure broker-dealers maintain the security and confidential customers' information. Reg SP requires firms to provide clients, clients with private see, notices at account opening and annual, annually therefore after. Explaining what information the firm gathers about them, whether this information will be shared and how the firm safeguards this data. Clients also have the option to opt out of having certain information shared with third parties unless the request unless it's the request of the regulators, IRS or FINRA. Otherwise legally required clients must be given thirty days to opt out a posting of privacy notice where the firm is not considered delivery. By mail or in person delivery meets industry requirements online delivery is appropriate for web based training and knowledge you received Let's be customer protected. Okay, whatever. Not a big deal. Um, we're going to talk about one of these violations, and then we'll, we're almost done, and we'll talk about some training practices that are violation, and then we'll talk about the FDIC, and then back to the violations. So one of the violations you have is called commingling. Um, 
Customers and firms' assets must be separate from another. Mixing the two is a violation referred to as commingling, and this is a violation. So let's talk about the FDIC and SPC, SPIC, SIPC. Um, under FDIC, bank depositors, money markets, blah, 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 we know, are covered up to 250000 per depositor in each thrift. Um, what is not covered are like stocks, bonds, annuities, all that. So let's do the other one, SIPC, securities and cash held in broker accounts, and SIPC member firms up to 500000 including 215 cash. Um, and this is only covered if the broker-dealer goes out of business. So... The SIPC is a non-for-profit corporation that protects each customer and a broker-dealer. If they go bankrupt, um, they're covered up to 500000 but no more than two fifteen cash. Importantly, SIPC coverage protects customers, cash, and securities, but not from market losses, just from the firm's failure. Note that SIPC does not provide non-security protection. To, to protection to non-securities such as commodities and futures. After the failure, the SIPC will first attempt to locate the securities and replace any loss. If your amount exceeds the 500000 then you become a creditor of the broker-dealer, a general creditor. In the case that the broker-dealer becomes insolvent, the market value is used to determine is is on the date the bankruptcy is filing made with the court. Um, okay, thank you. Looks like I have a little bit of a duplicate, so let's get to some of those violations. So churning means made too many trades in a customer account. Commingling is when you um, don't. When you mix the firm's assets and the customer's assets and mark in the open is a prohibited business practice and it creates artificial and perhaps anti-competitive practices. Um, and then another one is, um, I guess, Vulnerable investors, uh, FINRA defines a vulnerable investor at those age 65 or older, well, as well as anyone 18 or older that has who the firm or its reps believes that it has a mental or physical impairment that renders the individual unable to protect his or own interests. If the firm believes there has been financial exploitation of this individual by a party able to transact the account, the account's trustee, I guess, then the firm can, can, can conduct or um, institute a 15-day hold on the account to review facts and circumstances. If after the 15-day hold, the firm has a reason to believe that malfeasance is ongoing, they can extend this hold to another additional 10 business days. Um, another thing is firm's financial, a customer can demand to see the most up-to-date financials for the firms where their accounts are being held at. Um, for investments and street names, the broker-dealer is responsible for selling the peroxy in the annual reports. 
Um, if you inherit securities, when an investor inherits securities, the investor cost basis is adjusted to fair market value of the security at the time of the death. This is referred to the step step up basis. Let's see what else we got. Uh, another off topic is clearing versus introducing firm. A clearing firm is responsible for processing the uh, this contrast. Okay, so this is the clearing firm, and I think that is it. All right, welcome back, class, and we will be going over Chapter 12, these stupid tax advantage accounts. So under tax advantage accounts, just from a high level, and I will deep dive into each one of them. You have retirement accounts, and you have educational accounts. Under educational, you have the 529 plan and the Coverdale plan. Under retirement accounts, you have non-corp corporate plans, which is a 403B and the 457. And then your main ones um, will be the corporate retirement plans and the individual retired plans. Retirement ones, the individual ones are traditional and Roth IRAs and the SCP IRA. Um, but then the retirement ones that corporations offered, there is qualified and non-qualified um, under qualified, you have 401k, the Keel plan, the HR10, the pension plan, and these are covered by ERISA, and non-qualified would be payroll deduction and deferred compensation. So let's start with non-corporate ones. 403Bs or TSAs are a tax-sheltered annuity, also known as a 403B, is a retirement plan. Um... Sorry, so the TSA is a tax-sheltered annuity, but the 403B is a retirement plan used by public employees and nonprofits in schools. Similar to a 401K, it allows individuals to make pre-tax contributions. The investments in a plan grow tax-deferred, and all distributions are of the plan are taxed as ordinary income. A 5, or sorry, 4, 75 is similar to a 403B, but sponsored by state and government entities. Now let's go to that corporate plan. So you have two types of corporate plans. You have qualified and non-qualified. Um, 401Ks are pre-tax, tax deferred, tax is ordinary income. Um, employers and employees contribute. Raw 401K is post-tax, tax-free, tax-free um, when you take it out because it was post-income or post-tax contributions, only employees contribute to our post-tax. And I'll get to more on that. Uh, pension and TO plans, not super important, but these are also pre-tax, tax deferred, and they're both taxes, ordinary income. Um, the pension is a defined benefit plan. And the Keo plan is only con is mainly for um, self-employed income. Um, and then an example of a non-qualified plan is the deferred compensation plan, and this is post-tax deferred, tax-deferred growth. Um, earnings and growth are taxes, ordinary income. And remember, non-qualified may be discriminatory. So let's get more into the details a little bit. Uh, qualified retirement plans. Uh, under qualified retirement plans, 
Um, all employees must be vested after five years, as ERISA says, ERISA back, so there is no credit risk. If the firm goes under, these plans are non-discriminatory, full-time and part-time, and you must be over 21 and have a minimum of one year of working. Um, when I say five years of vested, that means you get the employees, the employers amount that they contribute Non-qualified retirement plans. Remember, these ones have credit risk. Non-qualified corporate retirement plans carry credit risk, and the employer is insolvent prior if if the employer is insolvent and prior files for bankruptcy. Non-qualified plans do not meet the certain federal legal requirements for ERISA. Um, Payroll deduction saving plans or non-qualified retirement plans, which in these plans, employees may deduct a portion of their salary for retirement savings, but those funds are taxable when earned, whatever the resource requirement is not tested. Benefits of these plans include employees, flexibility and structure, no limit on income. Um, another ERISA thing is every ERISA covered retirement plan must have at least one fiduciary identified in the written plan. In general, ERISA requires a plan eligibility to any employee who's 21 or one year working experience. Uh, Roth 401k. Remember, the employee matches to the Roth, but the employer matches matches to a 401k. Um, A profit sharing plan. A defined contribution retirement plan that allows companies to base um, a percentage of their profits to their employee's retirement account, these are qualified. Let's move to individual ones. Um, individuals are pretty pretty similar. Um, they're taxed exactly the same. It goes income. Um, but let me go, let me touch more on that. Traditional IRAs are pre-tax. Tax deferred, a traditional IRA contributes pre-tax and have tax deferred earnings and all growth and distributions are taxed as ordinary income when you take them out. You have a corporate and an individual one, only pre-tax if your company does not offer it. Beneficiaries pay ordinary income with withdrawals from traditional IRAs, but withdrawals by visionary accounts, owner death. So if someone dies is the only one exception to, but you there's still a 10% penalty. Exception is not available to spouses and benefits who would like the IRA. No age limit, just make, there's no age limit. And yeah, so IRA contribution limits. Um, the maximum contribution limit is $6,000. Or 100% of the individual's income. If it's not $6,000, blah, 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 blah. Okay, we know that. Um, option positions are prohibited in IRAs except for covered call writing programs. IRA contributions vest immediately as the IRA set up by an individual who are doing their own income. That's something different. Spousal IRA, a contribution of $6,000 can be made by a working spouse of a of an IRA account and a non-working spouse. A catch-up contribution, if a individual is 50 years or older, they can contribute an additional 1K to their IRA. Wow, seven grand in total. 
Excess contributions, if investors make excess contributions more than $6,000, there will be a 6% tax penalty on the excess contributions. IRA rollovers, individuals can move their IRA investments from one plan to another. This is referred to as a rollover. It must be completed in 60 days to avoid potential tax liabilities and early withdrawal penalties. Um, let's, let's go to a traditional IRA timeline before we hit the Roth IRA. Um, so from ages zero to 49, you can only contribute six grand. So that's the tradition, that's the maximum. Or if your active income is less than six grand, then you can contribute up to whatever your active income is. By the time you hit 50, um, by the time you hit 50, you can do a catch-up of an extra $1,000 until you're 59 and a half. And actually, you can keep this extra $1,000. So you can go $77,000 when you hit 50, um, even if you're over the 59 and a half. And then when you're 59 and a half, you can start withdrawing. But remember, before you're 59 and a half, if you were to withdraw, there's a tax. 10% tax penalty, and you have to pay ordinary income on the withdrawal. Um, by the time you hit 72, you have to take the required minimum distribution. Um, if you don't take the required the RMD, there's a 50% tax penalty on the amount you didn't take. And remember, all withdrawals after 59 and a half are subject to ordinary income tax. And then we'll talk more about the the timelines for the REM then, our uh, required minimum distribution, RMD, on um, when they have to be taken. But let's go to Roth. Um, a Roth IRA contribution to a Roth are always made with after-tax dollars. The earnings in the plan grow and accumulate tax-free. And qualified distributions from the Roth are tax-free. To be qualified, distributions must be made after being 59 and a half, and money must have been in the plan for five years. So remember that, 59 and a half and five years for the Roth. The Roth IRA early withdraws any individual under the age 59 and a half, with a valid exception, first-time home buyer, qualified educational expense, not family member, a debt, disability or major medical expense can withdraw from the Roth IRA that they have uh, that they've had for less than five years without being subject to the 10% withdrawal penalty which is um, the penalty if you withdraw the Roth IRA early however in the situation an individual can be taxed on those earnings I guess I'll double check with that um, high earners cannot contribute to Roth IRA there's a limit on your income Anyone under the age 70 and a half can contribute to a traditional IRA, regardless of income. Blah, blah, blah. We didn't know that. Uh, back to the RMD. The owner of the traditional IRA is required to begin taking distributions from the account by April 1st. Remember, by April 1st, after they're 70 and a half years old. 
The amount they require withdrawals referred as the RMD is calculated based on the owner's account value and life expectancy. For a Roth IRA, because there is no age limit for making contributions, RMDs are not required from a Roth until the death of the... Yeah, there's no RMDs. Note that beginning in 2020, the SECURE Act raised the RMD from 71.5 to 72. There's a 50% tax on the difference you don't take and take out. It does not apply to Roth IRAs. And the, 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 the denominator is a life expectancy factor from the IRA, IRS tables. SCP IRAs are simplified um, pension. I don't know. The type of employee-sponsored retirement plan that is typically lowered, uh, offered by small businesses because it's inexpensive to maintain, blah, blah, blah. And then the simple IRA, another one is simple IRA, match, uh, simple IRAs for 100 employees or less. Uh, let's get to like the worst part, which is what we call annuities. Okay, so annuities, you have two types. Uh, you have a fixed versus a variable annuity and a fixed annuity. An investor earns a guaranteed greater return. The risk of an and the risk of negative performance of the investor is assumed by the insurance company. Remember that. The, the, the return is guaranteed, but the risk is assured by the insurance company. However, the investor still faces inflationary risk and purchasing power risk if the rate of return does not keep up with inflation. And like I said before, the, the firm, the insurance company, um, is the one that eats up the returns or losses, so... You had high returns, well, they eat it, but if you have low returns, you make your return. But is subject to purchasing an inflation risk, power risk. In a variable annuity, the investor earns a variable return based on the market performance of the investment they select within the insurance company's separate account. The investor bears the risk of any reduced payout, market risk, and credit risk of the insurance company. Um, in general, so Fixed is general account, and then variable is uh, separate account. General versus separate account. Uh, general account fix of the insurance seeks to avoid return by investing consumers pre or customers premiums in conservative investment options such as treasury, high rate, high grade corporate bonds. Um, and the variable seeks to provide the investor a better return. Um, not guaranteed in a variable, but you can invest in equities and mutual funds. Okay. And let me see if there's anything else. Okay, so I got more payouts. Um, accumulation in a variable annuity. The accumulation theory buys... Um, yeah, the accumulation period is when you buy it. The annuitized period is when you start receiving the annuity. Um, remember, annuities, variable annuities can be only sold by people, by individuals, reps who have insurance and security licenses. Um, a guaranteed investment contract, a GIC, is an insurance contract that fluctuates like a time deposit and generates, and the investor agrees to deposit cash. Uh, for a fixed period in return, so the insurance can provides them with the guaranteed return. Um, this is what's offered in the general account. 
accumulation units is when an individual invests money into a variable annuity and the dollar invests into the insurance separate account. Um, each unit represents the interest in the underlying account, subaccount. The value of each unit will fluctuate based on the value of the securities in the portfolio. Therefore, both the number of accumulation units will vary. Numbers will increase as individual individuals invest more money and the value of each unit will also increase. Um, variable annuity payouts, so remember this. The payouts received by an investor from their variable annuity will fluctuate each month based on the performance of the separate account. If you die in this period, you are guaranteed the market value or the amount you have contributed, the higher amount. Um, variable annuity payout options. When an investor annuitizes, they begin to receive payments from the insurance company. One factor that impacts the monthly payments is the payout options. The investor has to choose a life option or a life annuity makes payments to the owner for the life of the investor. So remember that, a life option, but no payments to their beneficiary upon debt. In contrast, a joint or last survivor option guarantees payments over two lives, but is a lower amount. Once the investor dies, the insurance company will make a payment to the beneficiaries until their death because the life option is straight line and is expected to have the shorter um, shorter option it makes higher monthly payments the middle option is called life but at a certain period you can start withdrawing from annuities at 59 and a half the penalty of this is 10 percent applying prior to 59 and a half on top of the tax that applies to contract gains the contracts are uh, sorry, the gains are taxes, ordinary income, um, a surrender charge. A surrender charge is a fee paid by investors to the insurance company if the investors withdraw their capital prior to annuity. Surrender charges are similar to um, contingent deferred sale charges or back and loads of B shares. Um, a 1035 exchange, a 1035 exchange allows investors to transfer one in variable annuity to another without a tax consequence. Note that a sur surrender charge may still apply. So just a uh, recap on the annuity payouts. Um, there's a couple payments on the annuity. There's straight line, life with certainty, and then joint with last survivor type. And I have one minute to explain each of them. A straight life guarantees the, the payments for life uh, regardless how long the person lives, a life with certainty is um, guarantees a payment for life with a minimum period of life, which can be made to the noonan. But if the person outlives lives until death, um, they're not protected for that time. So period of 10 to 15 years. And joint with last survivors is an option that ensures income will continue through the death of the second annuitant. So regardless of who dies first, this is common for um, both. So the second one will will we'll take your payments. And really quick, um, because the straight life plan has the most riskies, its shortest expected duration, it pays the highest monthly payments um, in contrast to the other two that are the least riskiest. And that is my update. Um, 
Let's talk about educational plans. 529 plan. A 529 plan is a tax advantage. Um, to save for education, contribution, contributions to the plan are made with after-tax dollars. The earnings in the plan grow and accumulate tax-free. The distributions are qualified for tax expenses. Tuition and books are completely tax-free at the federal level. Technically, because 529 plans are offered by the state, the maximum amount that can be contributed will vary by state. Additionally, there's no age limit on the beneficiary of the 529. Program disclosure accounts uh, are provided by the state that detail the plan. Uh, another one outside the 529 is the covered Dell educational savings account, similar to a 529 post-tax Dollars to um, this. This is another tax advantage account to save for education. The tax treatment is identical to 529. However, the only difference to a 529 is they're much more, um, much more pop popular. What? Oh, it's much more popular. Two plans is. I guess the Coverdale has a much lower maximum contribution limit, which is two grand per child. Additionally. Uh, Coverdale can be open for any student who is under the age of 18, but the assets must be transferred by the time the student is 30. So remember, 18 and 30, there's a 10% penalty with early withdrawal, which means um, if, if you before college and high earners cannot contribute to this plan. Remember that? ABLE accounts and ABLE accounts are tax advantage, tax savings for individuals with disabilities. ABLE means disabilities, may be open for persons with disabilities up to the age of 26, allows for the donor to contribute after-tax dollars on behalf of the individual with disabilities. Their earnings in the plan grow and accumulate tax-free, and the distributions are qualified as a disability expense. Housing, education, healthcare, transportation are completely tax-free at the federal level. The limit is 15 grand. All right, everyone, welcome. Um, let's get this underway. So the first chapter we'll be reviewing is uh, chapter 14, business conduct and rules. First topic is broker-dealer books and records, including advertisements. Broker-dealers business records, which include advertisements, must be maintained for three years after the record is created. In a case of an ad. In, in the case of advertisements that are used multiple times, the three years clock starts each time the ad is deployed. And then for the first two years of those record retentions, the records must be easily accessible. Next topic is insider trading. If a registered rep holds non-public information, they can accept unsolicited orders from customers, only unsolicited orders. The two types of insider trading, first is a, and first is the misappropriation theory. Uh, this deals with an individual who wrongfully obtains or misappropriates inside information and trades on it for that person's own benefit. Um, going back to the journalist ex example, where they uh, overhear about a story and then trade on it. Um, the second one is duty of trust, trading on information that is known or should be known to be confidential. Um, an example of this is stealing MNPI off another person's desk. The penalties for insider trading are 
1934 Act provides both civil and criminal penalties for insider trading. Civil, civil penalties are up to a maximum of three times the profit gained or the losses avoided. Civil penalties, or sorry, criminal penalties are up to $5 million in fines and 20 years in prison. There is a cap for corporations of $25 million. Regarding policies for firms on insider trading, there's three you should be familiar with. The first one is informational barriers, the restricted list, and the watch list. Moving to our next topic is anti-money laundering. There are three phases of anti-money laundering. First is placement. This is depositing illegal funds into the account. Second is layering when the money is transferred through a complex financial trans through complex financial transaction to separate it from looking illegal. And third is integration when the funds are reintroduced into the economy. Piggybacking off AML. The next one is the Bank Secrecy Act or the BSA, which establishes a framework to fight against money laundering. Um, the first topic on that on the BSA is CTRs or currency transaction reporting. A CTR must be filed with FinCEN in 15 days whenever a financial institution receives a cash deposit in excess of $10,000 in a single day from a customer. This can include deposit of cash, a traveler's check, a cashier's check, money order, or a combination of all of them, which exceeds the limit. The next type of report is called a SARS, a Suspicious Activity Report. A SARS must be filed with FinCEN within 30 days upon discovering suspicious activity. Examples include insufficient or questionable account information, avoidance of record-keeping requirements, unanticipated changes in transaction patterns, inconsistent business activity, which are all red flags for suspicion of money laundering. Also to remember, FinCEN, IRS, Comptroller of Currency, or OCC, are bureaus of the Treasury Department that help prevent money laundering. The next topic we will get into is the Patriot Act policies. Under the Patriot Act, anti-money laundering compliance programs are subject to annual independent audit and testing. The independent party, though, for these firms can be someone within or outside the firms. Compliance programs, AML officers, info must be registered with FINRA and must be amended within 30 days for any changes. But this person does not need to be a registered rep. Annual testing of AML programs must be done once again with an independent party, someone in or outside the firm. Um, another thing on the topic is annual compliance meeting to ensure the firm's supervisory procedures and all the FINRA rules are being adhered to, all registered officers must attend this annual compliance meeting conducted by the firm's chief compliance officer. This meeting may be conducted electronically by video conference, but all participants must have the opportunity to ask questions and receive immediate feedback. Also, the um, anti-money laundering program is approved by a member of the firm's senior management every year. Well, 
not sure about every year, but it's approved by seniors management. Um, the next topic is CIP or customer identification program. The customer identification program is a provision of the US Patriot Act, which requires financial institutions to verify the identity of each customer who opens an account. The purpose that is to help the government fight terrorism and money laundering activities. Um, example, if a registered rep learns that a person or a company or they're associated with a company on the OFAC list, the rep is required to report this to the appropriate principal in the firm, and the firm must block the transaction and report the issue to OFAC in, a ten, in 10 business days. The next topic we're going to get to is outside business activities. A registered rep that wishes to engage in outside business employment, example, second job away from their firm, must notify their firm prior to engaging to the activity. Also, if the employee wants to accept a weekend job, they must amend their E4. Another topic on this is called selling away, um, which refers to when a registered rep is um, involved in private security transactions away from their firm. FINRA rules require the rep to notify their firm of this activity and if the, and also to notify the firm if the rep will get any compensation and they must receive permission from the firm. And the firm must also make sure there's no conflicts of interest. Um, another topic is called continuing commissions. This is when a registered rep who had continue, continuing commissions agreements as part of their retirement um, can still receive them, but they must have a renewed agreement between two parties and can continue to receive commissions for the legacy client even after the rep's retired, but they cannot get new customers. Sharing in customers' accounts. A registered rep can share his profits and losses in an account only with the permission of the firm and the customer. The sharing must be proportionate to each financial each person's financial contribution to the account. Another topic is called is borrowing from lenders or members. Registered reps are generally prohibited from personal lending to clients unless the firm has written procedures in place allowing for the activity. Assuming that that is the case, a registered rep is allowed to lend or borrow money from a client with no notice or permission required if the client is a bank or a family member. Firm permission is required if the loan is based on outside business or personal relationship with the client or if the client is a registered person at the same firm. Trading with another firm must get permission from your broker dealer, broker dealer and let the other broker dealer know your job title as a registered rep. New employees have 30 days to send over their account information. This can include family members, unless you can provide that you don't have financial control over them. You must send over account statements to your broker dealer from your account at the other broker dealer, but this doesn't apply to mutual funds, UITs, or variable annuities. When it comes to gifts and entertainment, under FINRA rules and MSRB rules, gifts to clients or potential clients are limited to $100 per client per year. However, entertainment expense 
or events where the register rep attends are not considered gifts. For example, if a rep takes a client to dinner and the bill is $250, this is permitted. Likewise, attending a baseball game where tickets cost more than $100 is permitted, provided that the rep attends. All right, so our next topic we're going to talk about is customer complaints. Under FINRA and MSRB, all written complaints must be forwarded must be forwarded to a supervisor. No, verbal complaints don't need to be reported. Uh, another off topic is protection to non-public information. Um, under Rule 2060, specifies that types of fiduciaries are covered under this rule. They consist of transfer agents, paying agents, trustees, and others who have privileged access to information about ownership of the issuer's security. I don't believe that will come up on the test, but we don't know. A, the next topic is controlled relationships. Exists when a brokerage firm or an employee of the firm is in a position to control or influence issuance of securities by an issue. Controller or control relationships are not prohibited, but are subject to stringent disclosure requirements. Our next topic that we're going to get to is political contributions. The MSRB has strict political contribution rules to prevent pay-to-play, which is a practice of muni firms and the representatives making contributions to candidates in exchange for receiving business opportunities. These rules apply to muni municipal financial professionals, which is any rep involved in a municipal security business except those limited to retail sales. Remember that, retail sales. Specifically, if an MFP gives a maximum contribution of $250 per election to a candidate they are eligible to vote for, this $250 limitations per candidate per election Primary contests are considered separate from the general election. So those are two separate ones. If the violation occurs, the firm is prohibited from doing any negotiable business with that issuer municipality for two years. This does not apply to any competitive bidding where the issuer is looking for the cheapest bid. Note that contributions made by MFP P's are not subject, or the spouses of MFPs are not subject to the 250 limit unless the contribution was directed by the MFP. These records must be maintained for six years, and that is it. And to the next topic of uh, communication, we will start with. There's three types of communications. There's retail communication, correspondent, and institutional communications. Um, as far as information pertaining to retail communications, retail, retail communications include any written electronic communication distributed to more than 25 retail investors within a 30-day period. Because these communications are seen by individuals, they require principal approval of before the first use and are highly regulated. For example, retail communications cannot predict or project the performance of a security, imply the past performance forecast for future results, or include exaggerated claims. 
take note that the following would be permitted. A hypothetical illustration of mathematical principles as long as it does not specify, predict, or, pro or project the performance of an investment or an investment strategy to a price target only if it contains if it is contained into a research report. The next type of retail communication is correspondent, distributed up to 25 retail investors and an unlimited amount of institutional clients in a 30-day period. Um, supervision and spot checks are required but not approval before first use. And then the last one is, is, is institutional communication. Um, distributed to only institutional investors, supervision and spot checks, but also the same, uh, no approval needed before first use. Um, on to our last part, um, communication through personal and personal email and social media. A registered representative is allowed to communicate with clients through a personal email address and personal social media accounts as long as they've received prior permission from their supervisor, and the firm will appropriately monitor these communications. Supervision is required for contacts with both current and per prospective investors. Um, as far as the two static and in interactive, um, social media static, which means this doesn't change, which would include Facebook, blog, website, treat as retail. Um, the second one is interactive, which is dynamic, real-time communication, um, Facebook comments, comments, uh, tweets treated as correspondent. Um, our next topic is MSRB advertisement. advertisement. Advertising records must be maintained for three years under FINRA rules and four years under, under MSRB rules after final use according Two MSRB official statements are not considered advertising. Official statements are provided to the purchaser of new issue. Um, sorry, official statements are provided to the purchaser of newly issued municipal bonds. Their creation is optional, but they are created. If if they are created, every investor must receive one. And then our last topic is business continuity plans. All firms must have a written business continuity plan to address emergencies and business disruptions. Customers must receive a summary of the plan at account opening, and it must be on the firm's website. Customer must, customers must also be mailed the summary of the plan upon request. Firms must associate two people with a business continuity plan, and one of them must be a rep and the, wait, what? One must be a rep and a principal. Okay, so one's got to be a rep and then the other one has to be a principal of the company. And that will do it for Chapter 14. I hope you enjoy and listen next time. Bye-bye. All right, kids. Uh, class is back in session for the last recording session. But not the last one if you're listening to this. So let's get going. Um... We will cover chapter nine. So first topic in chapter nine is the 1934 Securities and Exchange Act um, applies to both exempt and registered securities in the secondary market. Remember, this is the secondary market. 
Probably one of the biggest key topics is remember what an ask and a bid is the difference. Remember, the bid is the price a market maker will ask for the stock. But the ask price is what you buy from the market maker. It's the offer the market maker will sell to you. Um, settlement is the legal, legal transfer of securities to a buyer's account, to the cash, to the seller's account. The st- standard settlement cycle varies for different securities. You should know this. T plus one is treasury and options. T plus two is equity, corporate bonds, and uni bonds. And uh, just remember, customers have a two-day grace period to pay for their securities under regulation T as payment must be made by T plus four. T plus four, you know this by regulation T. Uh, let's get going to market making and broker dealers capacities. Uh, position trading is another term for a firm or when a firm is making a market in a security and trading for its own account to make a profit. As far as dealer capacity, you know the dealer can act as an agent or a principal. Um, when the firm acts as a principal or a dealer, they are the counterparty to the customer trading from its own inventory. So they got to either sell or buy with a markup or a markdown, and they must put this on the order ticket. Um, we know what agency is. They charge a commission um, as an agent in the trade. A hidden profit. Um, a securities firm may not overcharge a customer for a trade execution acting as a broker and a dealer, broker agency. On the same trade, it's called hidden profit and is not allowed. FINRA's 5% rule policy is not a rule, but it's a guideline. Under FINRA, describing the commission and markup charges associated with a secondary trade in the OTC market must be fair and reasonable pertains to NASDAQ, pink sheet, OTCB, third market trades, trades on on exchange, muni plus government trade bonds. Some trades are very risky and liquid. A firm, a dealer cannot be a broker and a dealer in the same trade. We've already talked about that in the hidden profit. All right, let's go to the U.S. equity structure. So, under the U.S. equity structure, you have two types. Um, you have stock exchanges that are listed, and then you have over-the-counter that are unlisted. Let's start with the most simplest one. You have the New York Stock Exchange is an auction exchange. There's a physical floor plus electronic trading, and then there's a designated market maker, a DMM, one per stock. We'll get more into that. There's the NASDAQ, all electronic, um, negotiated marketplace, multiple markets per stock. Going to over the counter, we have the OTC Bolton Board or the OTCBB, which is under the over the counter. Uh, FINRA operated quotation services, not in exchange, no listing requirements. OTC Markets, or formerly known as OTC Pink, or maybe still OTC Pink. Private company quotation services, not an exchange, no listing requirements. This one, remember, this one does not require quoted companies to make SEC filings, so less disclosure. So let's go into the details. The two main ones, the two main exchanges that are listed are the NYC and NASDAQ. Also, 
Also, I, this is a side note. Also, acting as a clearinghouse, guaranteeing payments, sellers, etc. Blah blah blah. NYC serves as an auction marketplace. Remember that. But the Nasdaq, it's a negotiated market. The floor of the NYC is has a DMMS, one designated specialist on uh, on the floor overseeing trading. Uh, on the other hand, the Nasdaq does not use a DMM or is a designated market maker. All done electronically. Um, some violations, there's one called back and away is a violation that occurs if a market maker fails to honor quotes. Sorry for jumping all over the places back to market making, but I'll get back to equity trading. Um, so remember the inside market is the highest bid or the lowest ask quote between dealers trading on their own inventories. Distinguished from retail market where the quotes reflect the, the prices and the customers pay to dealers. So, highest bid or lowest S. And don't forget what S bid means. Bid is how much the market maker will buy from you, and ask is how much you have to buy the stock at. Okay, let's go to the OTC. Um, under the OTC, quotes on the OTC bulletin board and OTC pink may be one-sided, meaning both the ask and the bid are not required. Quotes on national exchanges such as NYC, NASDAQ, and I don't know what the hell BATS is, but it was in here, are required to be two-sided. Don't worry about BATS. Uh, moving on. So, all right, moving on. Let's go to the OTC bulletin board or the OTCBB. Is a FINRA quoted FINRA operated quotation service that displays, displays real time quotes, um, etc. In the over the counter equities market, um, OTC CBs securities include regional foreign equities warrants, um, ADRs, and DPPs. Issuers that are quoted on the OTCBB are not subject to significant listing criteria required on national exchanges. For example, no minimum stock price or minimum number of shareholders is required. Once an issuer has met the basic requirements set forward in the security laws, registered shares under 33 and ongoing disclosures under 34, continuing disclosure 10Ks can be quoted in the OTC um, marketplace. To be quoted, however, there must be at least one market maker willing to enter quotes put in differently on the OTCBB. There is no, if there is no market maker, there are no quotes to be quoted. At least one firm must have, must agree to be the market maker in the stock. So. Next thing is um, remember the Act of 34 regulates all secondary markets. So um, the FRB Federal Reserve Board sets the margin requirements for the OTC stocks and whether uh, whether OTC stocks can be marginable case by case. Uh, let's move to the OTC markets are also referred as OTC Pink, which is the other one under the OTC. Um, OTC is so confusing. Whatever. The OTC market is a decentralized market connecting m m market connecting broker dealers electronically. It is a negotiated market 
place where various market makers enter bid and ask and facilitate the trading of stocks not listed on the exchange. OTC Pink, Pink Sheet Market, not required to be in current, not the, not required to be current with regulatory filings like financial statements. Example 34 disclosures. Quotes may be one-sided, and if not traded on both the OTC exchanges, these quotes must match. Just remember, OTC quotes can be one-sided. Um, the third market refers to an OTC over-the-counter trading exchange of traded securities. This type of trading is where listed securities will be traced, traded on an exchange other than their primary listing venue. Um, this is very common. Trading in the third market is not good or bad, saying that a listed securities trading on the third market would just simply be a way to describe how it's traded. Let's do an example. Charlie places an order to buy an NYC listed stock with his broker-dealer. The broker-dealer takes Charlie's order, and instead of routing it through the NYC, he routes it through another broker-dealer, which makes a market in that stock and can fill Charlie's order on its own inventory. Because the order was not because the order was filled by the OTC market maker, it's not on the NYC itself. This is described as a third market transaction. In terms of the pricing and liquidity, Charlie will receive the price that is good or better than what's available on the NYC. Um, had the firm obtained a worse price for Charlie, the transaction would be been a best execution violation, which is described later. So they got to give him the best price. And then the last one, um, sometimes often referred as the ECN or the Electronic Communications Network or the fourth market um, are passive computer systems that act as an agent automatically matching their members buy and sell orders. They can operate 24-7 a day. Remember, the ECNs are 24-7 a day, seven days per week, and offer a possibility of lower fees traditional than brokerages as a minimum uh, as minimum human interaction is involved in executed trades. ECNs only accept orders from their subscribers, also remember that, which are typically broker-dealers or large institutional traders. If a match can be made, the order will automatically execute against each other. Uh, Next topic is customer orders. This is probably the trickiest one, but we'll do good on it. So, um, first one is a market order. Market orders are executed immediately at the best price available. Our best available price. Market orders have priority over all other orders um, in general. Not necessarily for, for small orders, but not necessarily true for large orders. So next one is a limit order, a request to buy or sell stock at a specific price. Um, you have two type of buy and a sell limit. So a buy limit, a good example of this is your stock is trading at $25 right now but you want to buy it at 20, so you would put a limit order at 20. Um, On a sell limit order, a good example is its stock is at $20 right now, but you would want to limit that stock going to $30, so you would sell it at 30. Um, Remember the first price satisfies the trade on your limit. Um, good until closed, meaning good until canceled, longer than a day. Limited orders can be partially filled if no other trader cannot get the entire order executed. However, because the stop order becomes a market order once the order, uh, d- don't worry about the stop order. We'll talk about that. Um, okay, so next, 
Let's talk about stop orders. Um, so a stop order is an order to execute a transaction when the stock price reaches a specific level in a specific form of a limited order. Um, once the price reaches this limit, the order becomes a market order. So remember that. So a buy stop. So example, the stock is at $10 right now, but you want to buy it when it hits 15 because you think it's going to trend upwards, which is a weird way to think about it, but okay. A sell stop order, example, the stock is at 20 bucks now, but you want your losses to stop at $10. So once it hits $10, it becomes a market order. The last one is a trailing stop, and this one you can trail to protect your profits. Um, a buy stop order, an order for a brokerage firm to buy stock when the prices reach a specific level. Oh, okay. This makes sense. This, this buy stop would protect you against a short gain. Another thing is stop orders are primary use limit a stock in an open position. Additionally, when the price... Okay, so just remember that a, um, a buy stop buys the stock when the price goes up but it's good it's a good hedge for short selling or it's a good it's a good way to get out of your losses if you're short selling and a sell stop is really common it's when the stock goes under a certain price that you don't want it to go under and then it becomes a market order um another acronym to remember these is slobs or sell limit or buy stop um remember sell limit and buy stop remain the same at the ex-dividend date, but a sell limit or a buy stop, a bliss, as they call it, I don't know why they call it bliss, entered at or below the market price of the security, reduce at the ex-dividend date unless a do not reduce is used, a DNR is reduced. So let's review that. That's probably a really big one. Adjustments of orders on the morning of the ex-dividend date any orders that are entered at or below the market are, are are adjusted downwards at the amount of the dividend. So these are the orders that are adjusted on the morning of the ex-dividend date. This includes a buy limit, a sell stop, and a sell stop limit orders, and sell stop limit orders. Note, these are the ones that are entered above at market and won't be adjusted. So these include a sell limit, a buy stop, and a buy stop limit orders are not adjusted. Um, so I think really honestly the main ones you want to remember are sell limits and buy stops. Remember sell limits, buy stops. Sell limits and buy stops are adjusted. Sell limits, buy stops. Really quick, we are close to being done. Um, order ticket requirements. Um, I said this a few times. It's got to include the account ID, description of security, number of shares, terms of order, market limit, market order or limit, time of order of entry and execution, execution price, um, identify whether the, the firm was an agent or the capacity or whatever. The client's name or address is not the end. Need on the order to get all transactions in the equity securities must be reported within 10 seconds of execution in order to promote transparency for all market participants. Um, last topic is market protection, order splitting, breaking a large customer's order into smaller parts is 
allowed if it helps for best execution, but this is not permitted in order to generate higher commissions. Um, another one is called marking the open and close, manipulating the market at the open and close is prohibited. Another one is called interpoisoning, unnecessary ins inserting of another party between a broker dealer um, is a violation. Front running, front running is prohibited, is a prohibited activity where the registered rep or the firm becomes aware of a large customer order and, and trades on his personal account beforehand in hopes the large order will increase the stock price. Example, a firm receives an order from a customer to purchase 20,000 shares of XYZ stock. The firm buys that stock before executing the client's order. This would be called front running. Trading timing, you cannot trade ahead of your customer's interests unless it's an institutional client. Trading ahead of a research report. Trading ahead is a violation where the broker dealer or the register representative trades the security based on non-public information contained in a research report. When taking orders from a customer of a non that are non-public, of a stock that there's um, MP and I, um, you can only accept these orders from the customer on an agency based on Arbitrage occurs when an investor takes advantage of a temporary price disparity in security. An example is buying a stock on one exchange for a lower price than selling it on another exchange. For a higher price, this is okay. Spoofing is a form of market manipulation where the trader enters an order to manipulate the price to be higher or lower with no intent of actually of actually executing the quoted price. In other words, spoofing refers to entering the orders to entice other participants to join on the same side of the market, and this is not allowed. Um, fees for market making. FINRA's general rule prohibits any members from accepting any payment other than consideration direct or indirect from the issuer, any affiliates, promoter for publishing a quote as a market maker. Okay, so you can't collude with the issuer on a market making activity, I guess. Trade shredding or order splitting is a violation that the broker dealer splits large orders into smaller ones. Then I just, I thought I said that. Yeah, yeah, so don't worry about that one. We, we've already talked about that one. Pump and dump scheme is a form of securities fraud where an investor uses false or misleading statements to artificially inflate the price of its own stock in order to resell at a higher price. Example of this is when an investor randomly is randomly soliciting positive information over email and social media to pump up the stock. Okay. A broker dealer is acting as a trustee for an issuer holding ownership issuer of that common stock. The broker dealer may use this ownership, but I don't ignore what I just said there. Investors who are injured by manipulation can sue for damages and costs. The suit may be brought within three years of the manipulation and one year of discovery. This is the statute of limitation. So remember, you can sue up to three years, and it, but it's got to be within one year of discovery. So that is it.